Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. Check it out at tkex.org. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, hit the subscribe button and give us a rating so we can continue delivering high quality content for you. So I'm joined today by Raphael Bender. He is an exercise physiologist, CEO, owner of Breathe Education, a Pilates online education portal, and he has a wealth of knowledge. I'm really keen to dive into some topics with Raph today. So thank you so much, mate, for making the time for us. A pleasure, Daniel. So Raph, what's, what's your story, the infamous question? Uh, well, I really, really, really like science. And uh, I, I guess I just, uh, I've, I've found that uh, it seems to be my kind of superpower and something that I'm, I am very passionate about and something that I love doing um, and something that people don't mind paying me for to uh, essentially boil down complex topics into simple, actionable, you know, nuggets. And um, so essentially that's what I kind of do. I kind of read a bunch of research and textbooks and try and boil it down to a little bouillon stock cube um, so people can digest it easily. Love that. It's, um, there's, I think in this day and age, there's an overwhelming amount of information. So that ability to synthesize, synthesize it all into something that's uh, easy to digest and easy to use to take away, I think that's a huge superpower. So mm. I envy Thanks. that one. I've got to, got to get your, uh, your tips for how to develop that superpower. So Raf. <laughs> We've, um, I've been lucky enough to, to meet you in person. And one of the things that I really, that really struck with me and resonated is your dedication to continuing education and, and upskilling. So could you give us a bit of a background as to some of the, the courses that you, you've been to of, of recent years and, and what you're looking forward to as well in the, and what you're doing at the moment when it comes to continuing education? Um, yeah, so I have, a few years ago, I had a little bit of a um, a moment of insight where I realized I went and did a course with Peter O'Sullivan, um, cognitive functional therapy training for a weekend. And I realized, and it was only like $1,200 or something, you know, and I thought, wow, you know, you can study with like literally the best, most preeminent people in the field for, you know, essentially negligible, you know, when you consider like the cost of just going to a conference or something or, or going to a second rate training, you know, it's like, about the same price so I, I realized at this was maybe four or five years ago that you can just study with the absolute absolute best people and at that point i decided um you know i'm only going to study with the best people so i've studied with peter i think i've done his cft calls like four times now um i've trained uh with uh the originators of um motivational interviewing over in um the states in the southern u.s um i've trained a little bit with lorimer mosley with Stuart mcgill um i've done greg lehman's course ben cormack's course uh i've been to the san diego pain summit um uh, yeah so i've just i've done a lot of those kind of weekend courses uh with those people and but i think my my i'm not really i don't really have anything on the horizon at the moment in terms of training because I've kind of come to this almost kind of a, I guess, 
I don't want to use the word, but I can't think of a better one, nihilistic um, place about uh, you know, practitioner skill where I sort of think like, well, you know, does it really make that much difference if I kind of, you know, get better at doing client assessment or get better at prescribing, you know, directional exercises for non-specific low back pain or get better at patient, you know, neuroscience education or, you know, it's like, I don't, none of those things seem to make much difference. So um, I, I'm a voracious reader and right now I'm, I, I, I still constantly read. I probably spend three, four hours a week reading research. And I, I just, I'm into re- reading original research now. Subscribe, subscribe to a bunch of research reviews. The mass, um, can never remember what it stands for, but it's monthly something strength sports or science strength or something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, that's fantastic. Greg Knuckles um, et al. Um, and I subscribe to Alan Aragon's uh, research review, which is a nutrition review um and i subscribe to strong uh to the barbell medicine research review and also the strength and conditioning research review which is uh chris beardsley um so yeah i read there's probably like 40 papers a month that i read that are in those plus then you look in the um you know the bibliographies of those papers. You're like, oh, that one looks that one looks interesting. So you go and search that up, or then you know someone will post something on social media, and I'll be like, oh, that one looks that one looks cool. Like I've got a couple of people on social media that I follow that are super awesome, and they're not like big figures. They're just like some random, really cool physio over in Guatemala or something who happens to just be really on top of posting cool cool stuff. Yeah, so that's 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 pretty much where I'm at these days. Right. So you reach the point where you've kind of. Uh, after following the the prominent researchers in the in the field, you can still keep up to date with, with what they're posting, and and now just stay keeping on top of primary resources of information. Yeah, um, I, I guess I've my I was very interested in in pain and pain science, and uh, you know anything to do with rehabilitation um, for several years, and I, I've you know, I've kind of built a business on teaching people how to do that stuff. Um, but really, I've really come to a place where I feel like actually probably most of the money that we spend on low back pain is definitely a waste and possibly making things worse. And we'd probably be better off if we just did less, you know, with, with these people. Um, and so you know, like I'm thinking about this is a great study from 2016 or 2017 out of Queensland, Gibbs et al. Um, they're a bunch of EPs in, and they basically did two groups. They randomized them into, um, they either got an individualized exercise program based on, you know, direction preference, flexibility, blah, 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 muscle endurance, or they've got a stock standard general exercise program. And it was just hand with no assessment, right? Just Here's your sheet of exercises, essentially. And then guess what? Eight weeks later, no difference. You know, they all got better. They'll improve their self-efficacy. They'll improve their strength. They'll improve their endurance. They'll decrease their visual analog scale and, you know, on the pain. No difference between groups, you know. So it's like, oh, well, do we even need to do an assessment, you know? <laughs> like, um, and what they found in that, what they reckoned in that study, they concluded that actually just giving the people a sheet of exercise and saying, hey, these are exercises are great for chronic low back pain, 
that that was enough to enhance their self-efficacy, you know, and then just getting them moving straight away. And then there's, you know, there's all those um, manual therapy studies that show that any, that like a therapist selected manipulation is exactly as effective as a completely randomly effect, you know, selected general manipulation, you know, so if you just get some random chimpanzee to press on your back for 10 seconds, it's just as good as someone's got a PhD in manipulative manual therapy, you know, and so all of that clinical reasoning and problem solving that we're doing, you know, then there's the, what was it? The, was it Travers, the, the, the paid neuroscience education study from April 2019? That was the big thing. It's like, oh, the explain, explain pain plus exercise versus just exercise. And they found no difference. Um, and so I think like, okay, well, there's all these incredibly smart people having these great nuanced arguments about, you know, is pain a sensation or a perception? And at the end of the day, it's like if you just hand someone a freaking photostatted form of, with 10 stock standard exercise on it, it works just as well as anything else. So, you know, what, what's all the fuss about and why, why, you know, it seems to me like a, a bit of a waste of time, you know, thinking about all those nuances. I agree. And, and uh, shout out to Mitchell Gibbs, who I've met in, in person from Western Sydney Uni. He's in, in our group too. He's um, quite a prominent researcher in the area. And, and yet, yeah, what a great study and, and what, a, what a confrontation to our biases as you know, exercise prescribers, right? We, give, right? we were taught to give an individualized exercise prescription to people. And it's like, ah, oh, just general things, just get just people moving. General. Just yeah. everyone, yeah, just general, you know. And, you know, they even found in that study that adherence was just as good in both groups, you know? So even that kind of notion that, oh no, when you individualize people's preferences and whatever, it's like, yeah, well, maybe not, you know? <laughs> so where, in, based on what you've come across and, and I, I totally agree that the um, perhaps we've been overcooking a few areas when it comes to research. Where do you think that our, our research efforts would be more helpful to, to go towards what other kind of avenues or directions? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, like everything we do for low back pain or, you know, shoulder or knee or hip pain or whatever seems to work about the same, but it only works a little bit, you know, like we, this, we still know like 10% of the answer. So I think like, yeah, heaps more research is needed, but let's not have another study on freaking transverse abdominis, you know, let's not have another study on muscle balance or posture. Um, you know, like, let maybe maybe self-efficacy. How do we enhance self-efficacy more? Um, maybe maybe the focus on pain is actually not the the best way to. You know, maybe we should be thinking about disability instead and function. You know, maybe we stop thinking about pain so much. I I don't know the answer. I mean, obviously, if I did, I'd be I'd king of the world. And, you know, <laughs> light, lighting my cigars with hundred dollar bills, but you know, we're not there. I think yet yeah, the the focus maybe could be shifted if we know that generally lots of things work for pain and there's not too much effect specifically. So what else can we do? Can we look at maybe some more, more meaningful measures? I'm totally with you there. And um, it's just, it's great to reach that kind of nihilistic kind of philosophy once you've gone through all the, all the research. Um, wanted to, to chat about the kind of uh, really interesting topic on, on movement, on how we can, facilitate learning of movement and I, I feel like our our role as as movement professionals as exercise professionals um, we might think that we need to teach uh, or cue 
or have all the right kind of answers for someone to perform movement. And then we look at how dynamic the human body can be. So what are some of the, the perhaps the, we'll start with some of the misconceptions when it comes to, to teaching, to, to going through movement learning, motor learning. Well, I love this. I love this topic because it's the exact opposite of low back pain where, you know, if you go to Google scholar and type in exercise and low back pain or something, you get like 2 million plus results. And out of 2 million plus studies, what we know is like, yeah, everything works a little bit, but nothing works very well. And that's about, that's about where we're at, you know, 2 million studies later. It's like very, very uh, frustrating place to be. But with movement, uh, you know, motor skill learning, movement skill learning and teaching of movement skills, actually, we know an awful lot. Like it's kind of an open book to us. Like it, it just turns out through whatever quirk of fate that, you know, the researchers have just happened on the, you know, to uncover the formula quickly or maybe it's, it's just a simpler formula for movement teaching. I don't know what, but it's like, yeah, this is an area where we actually do know what we're talking about when it comes to how to do it. So, um, and it, and even better, it turns out that the answer is really simple. Um, so, um, yeah, I've done a lot of reading in this and I've talked with the, a couple of the most preeminent researchers in the world, um, Gabby Wolf and Rebecca Luthwaite. And, um, uh, it turns out that basically the, the, there are just three things you should do. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, going back to your question about the, the misconceptions, I think almost everything that people think they know about how to teach movement is is generally <laughs> wrong. Um, you know, people give lists of instructions about where your body parts should be. Um, people, people tell you about which bit to move first, which muscles to activate. Um, you know, like there, there are so many, uh, you know, layers of, uh, you know, even the notion that you can, that there is a correct way to move and that you can teach that to someone like that, that foundational assumption even is, is incorrect. <laughs> so it's like, Oh, where do you start with the misconceptions? Like if I'm teaching someone to deadlift, I just say, there's the bar, pick it up, you know, like, and then they, they figure it out. You know? <laughs> it's so against what we've been taught. It's so against kind of the, the paradigms that we're, we're brought up with the kind of, there is a right technique and, and kind of um, there are some standardized linear kind of movement patterns we have to adhere to. And then when you look at the research, it's quite dynamic. Absolutely. Well, you know, the research into, into, I mean, if you look at elite athletes in, you know, I mean, I don't know a lot of sports, but I I know a fair bit about powerlifting. So I'll kind of start with that, but like in deadlifting, you know, everyone's told like, I can't help when I'm scrolling through Instagram or whatever, there's some helpful, you know, quite clinical exercise or corrective exercise person there telling you that you should keep your back straight in a deadlift. And, you know, it's just not true. Like if you look at research on actual elite deadlifters, you know, people who are, you know, in the top, you know, hundred in the world sort of thing, like none of them keep their back straight, like literally none. And, you know, people have vastly differing techniques in terms of, or not vastly, but significantly different, differing techniques, techniques in terms of things like width of, of foot placement, you know, hip rotation, um, uh, the, 
the you know their people's body segment lengths are very different people have different lengths femurs relative to tibias relative to torsos relative to arms and stuff like that so of course people need and they're picking up a fixed bar from a fixed height so of course they need to adopt different strategies uh but as 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 elite lifters you know approach you know 90 percent or more of their one rm like they all converge on a very similar set of strategies although they have you know different stance widths and, and whatever like it, there's there are kind of a few elements of technique that all emerge and one of them is a rounded back, you know? So if you look at any deadlifting world record that's been broken in the last 10 years and just look at the footage of it, they all have a round back. It's very plain and easy to see, you know? And yet that, you know, despite, you know, both scientific evidence, you know, in, in any published paper that looks at elite deadlifters, they all find that they're flexed and also just like go to YouTube you know, just just watch anyone who's deadlifting anything, re- you know, like three times body weight or heavier. It's like they're all doing it flex. So, but despite all of that evidence, it's like you ask pretty much any personal trainer or sadly any exercise physiologist um, or strength and conditioning coach about deadlifting, they'll just tell you, oh, yeah, neutral spine, you know, make sure you don't flex your back. It's like. It's it, the one of the, the key words there is that it kind of emerges as as practices as learning occurs. So we, we perhaps we don't have to kind of adhere to these rules. And maybe, like you said, if we just tell someone a simple cue to just pick the bar over time, will it become more efficient with practice with learning? As long as we create the right facilitative environment for them, and and maybe some of the the three kind of tools and tips from from Wolf and and uh, and Braith, uh, Luthwaite, sorry. On, on movement motor learning, maybe we don't need to kind of worry so much about form and technique. Right. Well, I think, um, you know, there are two separate questions. Like, you know, I have a very, very minimal, minimalist approach to cueing and giving instructions for exercises for people. Like I literally, what I said before is, is correct. I literally say, there's the bar, pick it up. You know, and the person, if the person says, how should I pick it up? I'm like, just pick it up, you know. And then they, guess what? They pick it up. But I think um, there's there's quite a bit of research behind that minimalist (laughs) approach. And, you know, the fact that I don't, that you, you know, that I don't give a lot of instruction doesn't mean I don't think technique's important. Like if you want to break a deadlift world record, yeah, you've got to have immaculate technique, you know. But the thing is, there's no one correct technique. So your immaculate technique is going to look very different to my immaculate technique because we're both picking a bar up from the exact same height, right? 225 millimeters off the ground. But it's like, well, if we're four inches different in height, well, that's going to look different, isn't it? And what if our femurs are different lengths? Well, that's going to look different. What if our arms are different lengths? What if our muscles insert, you know, different distance from the joint? So, you know, one set of muscles have got greater mechanical advantage for you and less for me. You know, I've got to have my feet in a different position to engage those muscles more in a better length tension relationship so it's like well unless you know someone's exact you know limb you know segment lengths relative and their exact muscle insertions and the relative fiber composition of each muscle in the kinetic chain that's doing the work it's like well how can you tell them what their ideal technique is you know it's like we just don't have enough data points there's not a big enough computer in the universe to crunch that information but guess what your brain can do it you know and if you just pick up that barbell enough times over enough years you get really good at it you know 
you get really good at it. And every now and then, a coach might walk past and go, you know what? Why don't you try standing a bit closer to the barbell? You know, just a little tiny, little tiny hint, you know, or see how the barbell, you know, look how I videoed you here. See how the barbell kind of goes through a curve there. Try and make it go straight up and down. You know, can you try and make it go straight up and down? See how the the weight plate is spinning around? That's because the barbell's going sideways. You know, can you keep the weight plate still? You know, like stuff like that. But I, I would, those, that would be, I'd give that many cues over a period of like four months, you know. <laughs> and the rest of the time, would, you know, my, my cueing would be like, oh, that's awesome. High five. Keep going. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> you can do it. Love that. Yeah. So, what, what, once we get into the, the actual, the, what is most beneficial for motor learning, we realize how little cueing we, we need. And maybe at that point when it comes to most efficient kind of way and technique, it's, it's dependent on the athlete. It's dependent on that time of their training right. cycle. It's dependent on how fatigued they are. It's dependent on right. what number rep that is. There's so many right. other factors involved. And to say that there's one technique is just negating all the multifactorial nature of, of the movement and the task. Right. It's like going into the cockpit of, a, of the space shuttle or a jumbo jet or something where there's like you know, 7,000 buttons and dials and, and going, oh, which button do I press to make this thing take off? It's like, not just one button, I'm sorry. It's like there's a sequence of things that have to happen. Depends on the wind, depends on, you know, et cetera. So it's like, and if we think we can look at someone and go, oh yeah, here's the correct way to squat or the correct way to deadlift. It's like, no, there is no one correct way. You know, it's like, yeah, anyway. Um, so yeah, so I think that I, you know, the, the, I, I think there are two layers at which, um, most people don't quite, don't understand, you know, cueing. And one of those is that I think the foundational layer is the notion that the coach knows the correct way to do it, to do the movement. And the, the, the person who's doing the moving doesn't know the correct way to do it. It just seems to me back to front, you know? Um, and then the second one is like, okay, well, just say you did have a technique tip. Like, I don't know, just say someone was, I can't really even think of anything, but you know, some, I guess sometimes, sometimes those cues I use about the bar, the path of the bar can be useful. Um, you know, somebody, they'll figure that out themselves eventually, but you can help them just shortcut a little bit and go, Hey, if you keep the bar moving straight up and down, then that sometimes I go, huh, you know, that really helped. I think that's that's really most like you said, facilitative, self-discovery, and keeping them motivated while they do it. You know, that's it. and it's just good feedback as well yeah. for them that they might not be aware of. I think that's one of the values that that a coaching eye can can give. Yeah, yeah. Like another thing I see, um, uh, people you know, beginners with deadlifting often do is they they start with, you know, with their hands on the bar and they, with no tension in their arms. And then they like go into like a high acceleration, you know, pull. And so by the time they actually, they take up the slack in all their joints, like their, their torso is already traveling upwards pretty fast. And so it's like a jerk, you know, when they try and take the bar off the ground and that's not what you need. That's kind of like, you need a slow, heavy pull because of the, the, uh, force velocity relation, you know, relationship. So your muscles can produce greater force at slower contraction speeds. And that's just like, you know, exercise muscle mechanics 101. Um, that because obviously you can form, you know, you your actin, mice, and cross bridges detach 
quicker as you contract more quickly. And so they are spending less time pulling and more time detaching and recycling. So you get less force as you move faster or put another way, the heavier is something is that you lift, the slower you lift it. And so if you try and lift off the bar too quickly off the ground, like, well, you, you're, you're too far up the velocity end of the force velocity, you know, curve. And so you're not producing enough force. So people like go, Hup, bam, and they pull into the bar and it doesn't budge. <laughs> but if you, if you instead say, okay, why don't you just like take up the tension on the bar and then, you know, slowly pull the bar up off the ground. Sometimes, you know, that's a lot easier for people. That's it. And I love that we're not kind of uh, dismissing the fact that the, the shortest distance from point A to point B is a straight line. And we're not dismissing that there are some biomechanics that can make, uh, or I guess biomechanical knowledge that can make uh, our queuing more efficient, depending on the task. We're just adding on top all the other layers, all the other buttons in that spaceship on top mm. of what we know with, with simple human movement. Well, the reality from modern aircraft is the the autopilot does a better job than the human pilot 99% of the time. You know, it's just good to have the human pilot there just in case, you know, and and just to do a little tweak here and a tweak there. But basically they're on autopilot 99% of the time as I understand it. And I think that's probably the same in, you know, in teaching movement is that the the pe- person who's moving, their non the non-conscious parts of their their brain, their motor cortex, et cetera, are going to do a way better job than the conscious parts of the coach's brain in choosing the best strategy for that movement. But every now and then you can just go, hey, look, I've seen like 200 people do this move. You know, why don't you try it this way? That seems to be easier for a lot of people. You know, there are just a few little hints you can add. That's it. Love that. Uh, with, with motor control, so with Wolf and, and Luthwaite's research, there were kind of three key areas that, that I got. And also, if anyone's listening, they should also check out Breathe Education's podcast with the two researchers themselves. That was a great one. So could you outline those kind of three areas that we can use to improve someone's learning of a movement? Yeah. Um, so I love this area because I've read, I've, read a, I've read just about all of their research and I thought, gee, this is so awesome. It's so simple. I, th- I feel like I really get it. And then I thought, I started second guessing myself and going, oh, if I think it's really simple, maybe that means I don't get it. You know, <laughs> maybe I'm missing the point. <laughs> um, but then I talked to them. I said, just, this seems really simple to me. Is that right? And they're like, yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was, that was pretty awesome. Um, and uh, so the three things are, uh, and it turns out that if you're doing these three things as a teacher, as a coach, like you're doing about 98% of all that can be done you know, to help people learn better. Like, it's not like these are like the entry level things and then you get to the advanced things. No, these are just the things that help people learn movement. And number one is uh, promote expectation of success. And so when people expect to succeed at an activity, they um, try harder and they persist longer. And when you try harder and persist longer, guess what? You succeed. <laughs> so, so that's pretty cool. Um, but also when you promote expectation of success, you, um, when people expect a positive outcome from something, they get a little, we get a little hit of squirt of dopamine into our brain, which is a chemical that, you know, most people would probably think of as linked to pleasure, but actually that's not quite right. It's more linked to expectation of pleasure. So it's re- linked to reward seeking rather than, so you get the dopamine when you expect the reward, not when you get the reward. Um, so dopamine is what makes us compulsively, you know, gamble and, you know, eat chocolate 
or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's the expectation of reward. So when you get a little hit of dopamine, that's kind of what makes you persist harder and whatever. But also dopamine has a role, it turns out, in uh, consolidation of short-term memory. Um, and so you're, not only will you try harder and try longer, but actually you, your trying will be more effective, you know, as in you will lay down those, um, you know, motor patterns more effectively in the presence of dopamine. So when people expect to succeed, there, there are a couple of really easy ways of doing that. Um, number one, and my you know all-time favourite, is just have low standards. You know, give them a barbell with you know really big bumpers, but they're made out of polystyrene or something. You know, like really lightweight. You know, and and then they pick it and say, you know, there you go, pick that up, and they pick it up, and you go, whoa, that's awesome. You know, are you sure you haven't done this before? You know, like, and. Just give them an easy task, you know, set a really low bar. Don't give them 101 rules for how they have to do it. Just say, hey, if that thing leaves the floor, you win, you know, and bam, they win. And then you, and so that gives them a little squirt of dopamine. They feel more confident. The second way is um, in scientific jargon, they call it um, favorable normative uh, comparative feedback. You know, in other words, tell them they're above average. You know, like Daniel, are you sure you haven't lifted before? Like, I, I rarely see someone pick this up so quickly on their first session. You know, you're well above average in this lift. You know, like, are you sure? Are you sure this is your first day? You know, just stuff like that. Um, and then now, Gabby, Gabby Wolf and Rebecca Luthwaite, they they're not into kind of like uh, massaging the truth on that one. They're not into lying and, and saying, telling people they're above average when they're not, but I don't see any problem with it. It's like, it becomes self-fulfilling, right? So, um, this, this, the, the next one is you can just use sort of normative comparative feedback, like, you know, compare people to average in a way that doesn't reference them, but references the average. So, oh, you know, this exercise, like a lot of people find it a bit tricky right at the start, but then almost everyone finds they pick it up very quickly. And by the end of the first session, they, they really get it. And I think that's what you'll find as well. You know, it's like, here's what to expect with this coming up, you know. Um, and then the, the final one uh, there is to just catch them doing something right. You know, catch them doing something right and point it out. Huh. I love I love the way you grip the bar there. That's exactly right. And I didn't even tell you that. You just, are you sure you haven't done this before? Like you figured that out for yourself. That's awesome. You know, so yeah, so set the bar low, have low, have low standards, tell them they're above average, tell them pretty much everyone gets this first day and I'm sure you will too. And then just notice they're doing something right and point it out to them. Amazing. Yeah. So creating that, the positive associations with the, the process of, of learning the movement versus even the, the outcome sometimes so that they're, they're hooked onto that process. They, they love it. They enjoy it and they associate you as well. And that the context of, a studio or, or a gym or a clinic as like, wow, this is awesome. I love this place. I want to come back and practice more. And what happens when they practice more? They get better. And we all, cause we all like doing things that we're good at, right? You know, like if you go to dance lessons and you suck, you know, it's like, it's not, it, that doesn't motivate you to want to go back and do more. But if you go to dance lessons, the instructor's like, wow, you're awesome. You know, are you sure you're not a professional dancer? You know, like, nah, you know, <laughs> feeling good, you know, <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, yeah, it just motivates you more. That's it. And there's there's one other uh, topic as well with with increasing someone's choice or autonomy in the process. Could you talk us a little bit about that in, when it comes to motor learning? Yeah. So well, yeah. So there are three big things you can do to enhance motor learning. Number one is build expectation of success, which we just talked through. 
Uh, number two is is give choice or promote autonomy. Um, you know, just another way of saying give choice. Um, and really can be any choice. Uh, and and the study I love love to to think about in this regard was a study where they were learning a golf putting task. Um, I, I can't remember the name of the author, sorry, but basically they're learning this mini golf task. And they gave, uh, they randomized them to two groups and one group got a choice of, do you want a blue ball or a red ball? Um, and then the other group, they got matched with someone in the first group and whatever ball that person chose, then they got the same color ball. So every, you know, half of them got a red ball and half of them got a green ball, but half of them got to, or a blue ball or whatever, but half of them got to choose whether they got the red or blue ball and the other half just got assigned the red or a blue ball. And guess what? The people who got to choose learned better you know like their golf scores improved more and they had better recall a week later and so and they found this in a you know diverse range of of studies where the choice that you give people doesn't have to relate to anything meaningful about the specifics of the task that you're learning right but just any choice like would you like to use this weightlifting platform or that weightlifting platform would you like to do deadlifts first or squats first you know would you like to put the red plates on the inside or the outside you know any you know you choose which bar you want to use today, you know, like any choice at all, you know, green power band or yellow power band, like what flavor Gatorade do you want? You know, any choice, literally any choice gives people a sense of autonomy and control. And when we have autonomy and control, we're more motivated, we're more confident. You know, it's like we've all had a moment in our life, you know, probably when you were a teenager hopefully not since then, of driving like an idiot. You know, like I, I remember when I was 18, very vividly a moment when I drove like an idiot and I'm so thankful I didn't kill anyone or myself and I would never do that now. But it's like, okay, yeah, that was pretty stupid. Um, but when I was doing it, I didn't feel stupid. I felt like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm driving really fast. Aren't I cool? But like if I'm in the passenger seat and someone else is driving that exact same way, I'm thinking, you idiot. <laughs> right? So. It feels a lot scarier when someone else is in control, you know, and when you're, when you're in control, it feels, you know, even something that's equally as risky feels, you know, much safer. So I think that illustrates the kind of notion that just any degree of choice gives people more buy-in, more sense of control over the process, and that just enhances that dopamine hit and that motivation, adherence, and enjoyment of it. Yeah, it's crazy i can just be an innocuous choice it kind of reminds you of the planning process with motivational interviewing how instead of just giving someone the prescription and the advice we're asking what they would like first we're eliciting from them evoking their choices their preferences and that builds that autonomy and, and that uh more likelihood that they'll engage and commit to the process yeah. so we can do the same with exercise yeah for sure but the the, the awesome thing is about this that well not the awesome thing but the like the I think the fun thing about this in the research is the choice doesn't have to be meaningful. You know, just any, you know, would you like coffee or tea? It doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> um, but you, the choice could be meaningful, right? You could say, hey, would you like feedback after every rep or after every third rep? Or, you know, would you like me to video you and look at it? Or would you like me to give you verbal feedback? You know, you could ask them meaningful questions about the, about the task. Or you could just ask them, hey, do you want to use the red weights or the green weights? You know, it doesn't matter. It all works. That's so good. So good. Um, some practical tips for, for the listeners to take away with, with making it just, just increasing choice in general when it comes to exercise prescription. I think that's huge. So we, we don't have to kind of be burdened with 
knowing all the answers or, or knowing the exact kind of cues to give to someone. And even nice. playing around with a few things, having some fun in the process. Well, the good thing is, like, unless you're training for a specific event, you know, like in powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting or whatever it might be, like if you're just training for general strength and fitness or for pain rehabilitation or whatever, it's like any exercise is as good as any other. So it doesn't matter if you ask them, do you want to do kettlebell swings or bicep curls? It's like it really doesn't matter what they choose. <laughs> whatever they want, it's fine. There was an awesome little summary video on your website on hypermobility on, on the, the recent research when it comes to should we train full range of motion or should we kind of change that more of that quote-unquote neutral position for, for people mm -hmm. with, with hypermobility syndromes or just extra ranges of motion. They're living on that, the outer ranges of flexibility. What's uh, any updates and what's kind of a, some summary take-home messages when it comes to exercise with, pe for, with people who have uh, hypermobility? Um, just before we go to that, can I just finish off point number three for the motor learning, which I think is, is a really important one. Yes. Um, which is, uh, so the first point is build expectation of success. Second one is give choice. And the third one is uh, promote external focus of attention, um, which is the exact antithesis of what 99% of coaches, trainers, etc., do. And an external focus of attention is really, really simple. It just means you, your client's attention is focused on a point outside their body. So, you know, if you're thinking about the bar, that's outside your body. If you're thinking about your core, that's inside your body. If you're thinking about pushing your heels into the ground, that's inside your body. If you're thinking about pushing the ground, that's outside your body. So it's just bringing their attention to a point outside their body. So the cues that you use will be more effective in promoting you know, learning, as, learning as in defined as relatively permanent changes in skill over time as a result of practice, you know, like getting better at doing something. Um, if you focus their attention outside their body. So cues, I mean, in the, in the weights room, it's almost you know, too easy to, to use external cues because you just like lift the weight in such a way, you know, move the weight faster, push the weight to the ceiling, move the bar in a straight line, you know, put the weight down quietly, like anything that brings their attention to the movement, or, you know, to, it's essentially the result of their movement, not the performance of the movement that then engages those more subconscious processes in their brain, you know, around motor planning and stuff that are much faster and more efficient at finding you know optimal movement patterns for the individual for that given situation so yeah i think the third one use external focus of attention which means and then people often you know like when we teach this in in our courses you know some of the top questions we get are like okay but what's an external cue to get someone to fire their glutes you know and then but that but there is no external cue to fire your glutes because fire your glutes is an internal cue and it's like saying what's an external cue for an internal cue it's like it doesn't compute right so if we start thinking external cues and the research is unequivocal on this you know question like the research is very very uh, in very tight agreement you know over a very large number of studies for beginners for intermediate for advanced people for young people for old people for stroke rehabilitation for athletes for children like external focus of attention definitely enhances learning and performance more than internal focus of attention um, in, in all of these in all of these learning situations and so we need to let go of 
the idea of, you know, think about recruiting X, Y, or Z muscle. It's like, oh my, you know, FG, that is like such a foundational concept to people, you know, many trainers, if we were to go, okay, you don't tell people to contract muscles. It's like, oh, well, what the hell do I say then? You know, like that's, that's 90% of what I tell people, <laughs> you know? So I think this is, you know, I don't, I don't underestimate the, the, the size of the challenge of, you know, taking this on and starting to use external focus cues. And I think as trainers and as coaches, you know, we should also be easy on ourselves and, and, and acknowledge that learning is an overtime process. And that if you've been using a lot of internal cues that, you know, your clients aren't going to explode and, you know, like people can still learn. Like the great, the great thing about humans is we're basically learning machines, right? And even if you get bad coaching, you, you basically, you can't stop your clients learning. You know, if you give people the worst cues in the world, it'll slow them down, but it won't stop them from learning. They'll still get there. So even if you're using a few internal cues and you're telling people to suck their belly button in or activate their core or engage their glutes or whatever, it's like, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But just every now and then, if you notice yourself doing that, just instead of saying, you know, engage your core, say, lift the bar, <laughs> you know, and, and over time, just gradually add more and more of those external cues and just use less and fewer and fewer of those internal cues. But, you know, you don't have to go cold turkey. It's really hard <laughs> making that change. But I promise you, it's incredibly effective. And we know that from science. This isn't just my anecdotal, oh, I did it on my clients and it worked. Um, it's very, like, in, it's funny that in the scientific literature, this is so uncontroversial. I mean, this is just the, everybody knows this. It's not in any way exciting to talk about this. But in the, in the movement and fitness world, this is like heresy. You know, this is like, <laughs> you know. There goes all my knowledge that I've learned in the past yeah. few years. Damn, yeah. I, I, what do I say in all the silences in, in between the filler words to make me sound You say smart. nothing. You say nothing. Because when you're lifting the bar, it's like you don't care what that freaking stupid idiot's saying over in the corner. You're just like, you're thinking, you're not even thinking. Like if, you, if, if you've got enough weight on that sucker, you know, like you're just doing, right? Or if you really want to say something, say up, 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 you know, or push, 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 you know, like that's, that's all you need to say. So simple. That's so good. It was there just on that topic. Uh, I know with the hypertrophy literature, the bodybuilding kind of world, there can be a focus on internal focus of muscles. Have you come across any kind of literature on, on, on kind of hypertrophy and external versus internal cueing? Yeah. And there, that is the one situation where the research does suggest that internal cues can be useful is if you're solely focused on hypertrophy, not on strength. Um, for strength and endurance, external focus of a cue is external focus of attention is more effective. But if you're solely focused solely focused on hypertrophy, then internal focus, because what happens when you use an external focus of attention is your movement is more efficient, right? So what happens is you engage non-conscious motor planning processes in your brain that you you know result in more efficient movement. More efficient by definition means less effort for the same result you know, or the same amount of effort for better result. You know, either way, it's, it's less effort per unit of result. So in other words, you're using less muscle contraction to lift the same weight, right? Um, whereas in hypertrophy, actually what you want is more muscle contraction 
So if you want to get more hypertrophy, you actually want a less efficient movement. You want to contract your muscles harder and harder <laughs> to lift that same weight. So if you focus the internal cube by making your movements less efficient, <laughs> you get to do more effort to lift the same weight, therefore causing more mechanical tension on the muscles and better hypertrophy. Perfect. So the, the one instance maybe where it's, where it's useful. Or you could just use external focus of attention and add more weight on the bar. Yep. That's, you, you've hit my bias there <laughs> on the nail. Uh, wanted to, if you don't mind looking into some hypermobility. Yeah. Yeah. Takeaways. Go for it. Um, so well, this, now we're back to the kind of the low back pain <laughs> level of <laughs> knowledge because hyper, uh, hypermobility is one of those things that is very, very poorly understood, I think, at present. Um, and I think, you know, where I was coming from, where I started, when I started this research project was where most people are, I think, which is, you know, considering hypermobility to be kind of a biomechanical dysfunction um, that, you know, people are more vulnerable in their joints and we don't want to have them outside neutral because it might damage them or whatever. Um, and what it turns out that, um, you know, this is all... I don't know what the, you know, I'm just putting a number out of my head, but let's say we're 40% confident of what we know about hypermobility. In other words, it's a big gray area and we're not really sure. But um, it seems like you know, hypermobility is probably more uh, better conceptualized as more of a systemic condition that is on the spectrum of something like fibromyalgia. Um, as in, um, you know, well, here are some of the things that we know about hypermobility. People with hypermobility do have more musculoskeletal pain. Well, do they? It's probable that people with hypermobility, you know, on average, have more musculoskeletal pain than people without hypermobility. There are some conflicting results in studies. And so some studies have found, uh, most of the studies are in children. Um, some studies have found that uh, Caucasian children with hypermobility don't have more musculoskeletal pain, but um, Afro-Asian children do have more musculoskeletal pain if they've got hypermobility. Um, and then other studies in adults and adolescents have found that there is a greater incidence of pain for people with hypermobility, but it's, it's not specific to the joints at which the person is hypermobile. So they might be hypermobile in one joint, but have pain in a different joint. But they do have a greater incidence of pain overall. Um, and there seems to be a specific distribution of pain um, for people who are hypermobile. And I'm probably going to get this slightly wrong, but um, I'll send you a link and you can post the, the paper uh, in, the, in the notes. But it's something like, um, you know, neck, shoulder and knees or something and ankle, right? I, I can't remember the exact joints, but there were some, some specific list of joints where people who are hypermobile tend to have more pain than people who aren't. And, there were, and then there are other joints, like uh, definitely including the spine, I remember that one, where people who are hypermobile and people who are not hypermobile have the same exact, you know, prevalence of pain. So it's very interesting, you know, about, you know, yes, it, 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 hypermobility is associated with greater pain, but it's only in some people in some joints and it's not specific to the joints at which they're hypermobile. Um, and then there's, there's these other lines of research which show that hypermobility um, uh, gives you a much increased risk of a lot of psychological disorders. So a panic disorder, something like odds ratio of 4.4 to 1, um, 
if you have hypermobility, you're like four and a half times more likely to have panic disorder or um, anxiety disorder, agoraphobia. Um, so it's like, that's really interesting, you know, and if we're thinking about hypermobility as like a problem with the knee joint, it's like, well, what the heck's that got to do with panic disorder, you know? Um, so it must be something more systemic. And then um, there's this one study, which I, I just love, which is, which looked at um, things like uh, different uh, pain sensitivity and wind up ratios. Um, so like pressure sensitivity, I think they used uh, heat sensitivity, cold sensitivity, and also um, wind-up ratios of how much that kind of like flared people's symptoms. Um, and they found that people with hypermobility are, have generalized sensitivity to guess what, heat, cold, pressure, and all of that kind of stuff all over their body, like, like fibromyalgia. You know, um, So the, it seems to be central nervous system mediated, not a biomechanical fault with the elbow locking too far or something, you know, so it's like, um, and then the, the final study, which I really like is, um, and there's, there's surprisingly little research on exercise and hypermobility. Um, we do know that, um, people with hypermobility are more likely to suffer lower limb injuries. If they play team sports like soccer and things like they tend to sprain their ankles more, do their ACLs more and whatever. Um, and some of that might be biomechanical and some of it might be, uh, other like because we know that people with hypermobility have poorer proprioception you know poorer capacity to tell their you know the position of their own limbs in space and maybe that's because you know ligaments have lots of position you know like stretch receptors in them to tell you the angle of your knee and whatever and if the ligaments kind of all loosen and, and lax it's hard to tell the difference between you know 20 degrees bent and 21 degrees bent if it's like super you know lax there um or you know maybe there's some other reason um uh, and finally, you, so this last study, you know, there's, so there's, there's very little research looking at exercise and hypermobility, but this one study, like when I did, you know, I've admittedly just a review, not a systematic review. So just like trawling through Google filtered by my biases, you know, <laughs> finding what I, <laughs> finding what I found. Um, but I didn't find, I only found two studies that actually looked at prospective interventions exercise interventions for people with hypermobility. Um, and one of them was, um, so there was a couple of, there was a couple of reviews, systematic reviews I found. And one of them found that it was just like, they're so generalized, these things like, it says like, you know, quote physiotherapy interventions, like, you know, that could be just like <laughs> anything and everything um, were like better than nothing, but not better than any other active treatment, you know? Um, um, but then, uh, this one study looked at hypermobile children and they all had hypermobile knees and uh, randomized, it was a randomized controlled trial and they randomized them into either, so they all did this one exercise and basically they stood with their knee flexed and the physiotherapist put a, uh, a resistance band around the back of their knee and held it from in front. And then the child had to extend their knee against the resistance of the resistance band. And... Um, the two groups were randomized to either extend it to only, you know, in quote neutral, you know, 180 degrees or zero degrees of extension. Um, and the other group was told to go to their full anatomical end range, you know, whatever their hypermobile range was. And um, they did that. I can't remember. It was like eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it was. And then afterwards they measured their pain, their function, blah, blah, blah. And guess what? Exactly the same, you know, like ex exactly the same. Um, so we find that, uh, guess what? 
exercising into the hypermobile range, there's no evidence that I've ever seen anyway that suggests that it's dangerous. Um, there's also an interesting, like just this isn't on hypermobility per se, but like something like if you want to be an elite gymnast, for example, you've got to be hypermobile, like, you know, if you want to be elite. Um, and we have literature on uh, back injuries in elite gymnasts that says that those with the lowest amount of spinal extension have the highest number of spinal injuries, you know, which kind of makes sense. Like if you're part of your job is putting your head on your bum, you know, like, and you don't have enough spinal mobility to do that. Well, yeah, it probably makes sense that you might hurt yourself a bit more. So maybe in some situations it's protective in some situations it's, it's a risk factor uh, and it depends on the situation. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, but then, you know, there are so many, courses that you can see online or books or whatever like find the right exercises for hypermobility it's like and this is the same with so many areas like you then you go and look at the actual research and it's like there are fundamental questions that are like you know one does hypermobility cause pain yeah maybe probably some for some people in certain joints but not necessarily the ones that they're hypermobile in and is it related to musculoskeletal no it's probably more central nervous system mediated okay so we don't even know the question number one does it cause pain question number two can exercise fix the pain? You know, don't know. <laughs> Question number three, if exercise can fix the pain, is there any specific exercise that we should do that's better? Oh, we, we certainly don't know that, you know, and yet there are people out there touting like, oh, my magical 10-point program to fix hypermobility, you know. It's like based on what? Based on, based on just made it up, you know. <laughs> Try yeah. some bananas. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's it's so true when, when we look at all the claims that are out there, there's, and then we look at the actual evidence behind them, it's like, oh, maybe, maybe we need to rethink our, our claims and our understanding and look at what the body of literature says and perhaps be a, a bit more critical before we give out some information and some narratives that might be harmful for someone in the long term. Absolutely. And like, it's the same in so many areas, like scoliosis is another one. I mean, I don't know what that's like in the exercise science world because I don't hang out there too much, but in the Pilates world, it's like catnip. It's like crack. You know, people just can't get enough of scoliosis. And every person and their dog's written a book about scoliosis and the special exercises you should do to three-dimensionally expand your torso and balance your musculature and stretch the tight muscles and strengthen the weak muscles and blah, 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 blah. And elongate and think of add buzzword, you know, here. And then you look at the research and it's like, we don't even know if scoliosis causes pain. You know, we, we can't even honestly answer that question in adults. And then we certainly can't say if you can make any dif difference to structure, structural scoliosis by exercise, you know, big question mark, probably not, but we're not really sure. If we could make a difference to structure, would that affect pain? Don't know, don't know because we don't know if we can make a difference to structure. So how do we know if that's going to affect pain? Well, if we could make a difference to structure and that affected pain, what would be the best exercises to do that? Well, we don't have a freaking clue. Not, not clue number one, you know. And there are all of these, there's all of this research in scoliosis where people, but it's such garbage research. Like a typical one, um, it's, you know, they're randomized controlled trials, but like, so there's this one study, uh, I think it's from like 2016 or something, it's of the Schroff method. Um, and they... Basically, they, they test, here's what they tested. The, the Schroth method taught in clinic by a physiotherapist against the Schroth method done as a home exercise program against no intervention. 
right? So, and guess what they found? Taught in clinic by physiotherapists work better. And, but, but like you're testing it against itself, dude. Like why not teach the trough method taught in clinic by physiotherapist versus general exercise taught in clinic by a physiotherapist, then see if the Schroth method is any different. You know, like, so what you're measuring there is not the efficacy of the Schroth method. You're measuring the efficacy of a physiotherapist, you know, consultation versus not having a physiotherapist consultation, regardless of the content, because the content was the same between both interventions. So it's like, dude, how do you get to be a researcher and not understand such a basic, basic fundamental of, of, you know, experimental design. That's like what man- variable you're trying to manipulate here, you know, and, but that's, and that's not unique. Like every um, uh, scoliosis study on adults that I've read has such fundamental flaws in it that they start from an assumption that something works and then, you know, basically try and prove the assumption. It's, oh, it drives me bananas. I think that leads beautifully to the, the final question when it comes to critiquing and, and asking the right questions when it comes to reading, reading research. So thinking critically is a, is a skill that will definitely save a lot of people time and, and money and effort. And, and I'm sure if, if I had learned as much critical thinking as I did years ago, I would, have, I would be a lot richer by now with all the <laughs> courses wasted back in the early days. So looking at some of the, perhaps the, the concepts you touched on a few with, with those key questions on what's the, what are the assumptions? Yeah. Maybe we need to question the assumptions first when, when looking at a research paper. And could you talk yes. a little bit about uh, critical thinking skills when it comes to reading research? Yeah, well, I think that those, I think those three um, or four questions that, you know, uh, are really critical that I outlined before. Like if someone says I've got the best exercise program for XYZ, it's like, okay, number one, how do we know XYZ is a problem? Is it a problem? You know, do people with XYZ have more pain than people without XYZ? Do people with XYZ have more disability than people without XYZ. How do we know that? You know, so it's like, okay, well, if we don't know that, it's like, well, don't ask any other questions because we don't, like, we're done. Um, then, all right, so do people with, with XYZ have more pain or disability than people without? Okay, we'll just say they do. All right, can you change it? You know, can you change XYZ? Scoliosis, hypermobility, whatever. It's like, yeah. Maybe, maybe not, don't know. Well, if we don't know if we can change it, well, we certainly then don't know the best exercise program to change it, you know. If we don't know if we can change it, how do we know how to change it? Um, and then, all right, so just say, does XYZ, you know, is XYZ a problem? Do people with XYZ have more pain than not? Um, you know, can we change it? Okay, if so, what if we change it, does that change the pain? Right, so maybe we can straighten someone's spine if they've got scoliosis, but maybe that doesn't make the pain go away. You know, or maybe we can make people with hypermobility work within the neutral zone, but that doesn't affect the pain because it's central nervous system mediated and the central nervous system doesn't give a rat's ass whether your joint's in neutral or not. It's right. <laughs> um, and and then number four, it's like, okay, so just say it is a problem and we can change it. And if we change it, that makes that improves people's quality of life. Like, what's the best exercise to do that? And how do we know that that's the ex- best exercise? Because have, have we actually measured that against, say, general exercise, which is kind of like the, the baseline that we should measure everything against, right? So if you just went onto your lounge room floor and did some push-ups and some sit-ups and some bodyweight squats versus your special dinky exercise intervention, like, do we see any difference in outcomes for those two groups, right? And the answer is almost always, no, we don't see <laughs> any difference in the outcome between those two groups. So... 
Um, so those are, I think, really four fundamental questions without even reading research. Like when someone just says, hey, or like if you look at a, a research paper that says, you know, efficacy of XYZ treatment for, you know, back pain or shoulder impingement or whatever, it's like, all right, so when I see one of those, I just think, okay, shoulder impingement. Well, is that, is that, does that cause a problem? Is, you know, and there are a lot of people now that would say shoulder impingement's not a real thing. You know, it's a made up condition. And so it's like, all right, well, so we're looking at the efficacy of one treatment, you know, for a condition that is highly controversial at best and made up at worst. It's like, well, how are you going to get a good quality answer from that, you know, asking that question? <laughs> you know, is, is, is fairy dust or pixie dust the best way to um, get rid of bad juju spirits? You know, it's like, it's a, it's a useless question. So I think there's just some basic, you know, logic there that you can apply. And then the next thing I think is go by national guidelines, go by clinical guidelines. Like just if the national guidelines from every freaking developed country in the world for low back pain say reassurance and advice to stay active are the cornerstones of, of treatment, right? Just get freaking moving and try not to worry about it. And, you know, this is coming back to circle where we where we started about this kind of nihilistic attitude. Uh, we see there are there are like a, alarming studies that show that you know contrary to what you would expect, clinicians get worse results as they become more experienced and educated. You know, so people with twenty years experience as a physiotherapist get worse outcomes than people who graduated last year. Why? Because the people with twenty years experience now that's not everyone, of course. It's it's you know, on average, but the people with more experience tend to disregard national guidelines more and go, oh, I've got clinical judgment. You know, I can do this special magic technique that I learned on my course with so-and-so and I don't need to, you know, abide by those restrictive guidelines that limit my artistry and, you know, prevent me from engaging in my full, you know, intellectual, you know, clinical reasoning. It's like, I'm not just going to give someone boring odd reassurance and general exercise. I'm going to do special techniques on them. It's like, yeah, that shit doesn't work as well as just reassurance and advice to stay active. And so like, I think, you know, read national guidelines and do them, you know, read them and do them. If it says, get them, get your patients moving and try and reassure them, like just do that. Right. If it doesn't say like activate their core, well, don't activate their core. You know, like, yeah, read national guidelines. Like, so before you get, yeah, before, like, I think we're, you know, I mean, we're, I kind of live on the fringes of this kind of pain science biopsychosocial community of practitioners, you know, and I kind of see a lot of it, but I don't participate in a lot of it these days because I think we're like in this community, you know, the, the pain science aware community, we're like, so insular and debating about his pain of perception or a sensation, you know, it's like most people are like a hundred miles back. You know, most practitioners are still debating whether you should agree or disagree with national guidelines. You know, you know, they're like a national guideline is like, like the, the current Australian national guidelines um, are developed by a group of, I think it's like 71 PhD researchers who sit in a room for four years 
reading over a thousand research papers on this topic and then together they synthesize and go, okay, here's what the evidence tells us is the best thing to do. It's like, and you think you're going to like, you know, outsmart that group of people by reading a freaking Twitter thing or watching some YouTube video <laughs> on one study with seven people in it or something. It's like, just read the national guidelines. You know, it's like they've already done all the work for you. That's it. It's, it's like the, the perceived value, I guess, in, in our own perhaps anecdotal experience over the, the kind of body of literature that's out there. I think there's, there's many layers to that when it comes to what, what we value, what we deem is, is high quality uh, in terms of evidence. And then whether or not looking at that high quality evidence, someone would change their behavior. Maybe that's a, another story and another podcast for us and another rant, I'm sure. <laughs> Mate, that's, that's been awesome. I love these topics and, and really appreciate your, your passion in, in learning and, and your passion for science. I think that's it's really good, great to see and can really tell. And, and I really admire your, your continual education as well. It's, um, it's great to see I'm not the only one that takes a course more than once. I feel much better about myself there. <laughs> so Raf, for the, for the listeners that are keen to know more about you and, and reach out to you, where, where can we find you? Um, well, I'd just like to say the, the admiration's mutual and, um, you know, there are not, not many people I, I respect very highly in, in this field, but you're one of them. Um, and the, the rest of the guys, the knowledge exchanger in that, in that basket as well. Um, so uh, I have a company called Breathe Education. And so you can find my thoughts on uh, life, the universe and musculoskeletal issues at breathe with an E, B-R-E-A-T-H-E dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash blog and there are, I don't know, but I'd guess a couple of hundred posts there and you can just type in low back pain or pain science or biomechanics or whatever. Um, if you want to look up a particular topic. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rafa. Really appreciate your, your time and looking forward to the next one. Yeah. Likewise, Daniel. Thank you.